Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Jay McTie. He's an experienced educator who worked as a classroom teacher. He was a resource specialist and a program coordinator. He's also been the director of the Maryland Assessment Consortium. He's an accomplished author who has co-authored 17 books, including the award-winning Understanding by Design series that he wrote with Grant Wiggins. I am absolutely thrilled to have Jay and his experience on the show today. Today, I'm joined by Jay McTie. Jay, I always begin by asking guests about their journeys in education. And I know you have a long journey, starting out as a fifth grade teacher, you are a resource teacher, you've done work with gifted education. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about how you got involved in the Thinking Improvement Program. I was invited by someone who worked in state ed in Maryland to meet with him for lunch. And he said, I I have an idea I want to Put forth for you. And his idea was, he said, I've been watching all the research on cognitive process instruction and the shift from behaviorist to constructive and cognitive views mm-hmm. of learning. And he said, the things you're doing in gifted ed need to be expanded. They're important for all kids. Right. And it was a perfect storm for me because that was my own conclusion. Philosophically, I had gotten to the point of saying, look, these things need to be for more than just the top, you know, 3%. <laughs> Um, And so he offered me a job to work on something called a thinking improvement program. And I went to state ed, not to be a bureaucrat, but to to push the idea that you can really help people learn to think better and you can engage them with higher order thinking that helps them learn content better. And you can do it through more authentic learning experiences. And that shouldn't just be for the gifted. Right. Um, So I was in state ed, but during that time, after about five years in that role, um, Maryland, like all states, developed the first generation of standards. This was, in our case, 1990. And I was selected to be on a team of five people to implement Maryland standards-based reforms. What was noteworthy about that work, and related to my work today, in fact, was that not only did we develop uh, standards in the various subject areas, and we had to coordinate all the teams that worked on those, but we, we decided as a state to embark on a new generation of assessments. Mm -hmm. So in Maryland, for almost 10 years, Maryland had no multiple choice items on its state tests. Wow! All of our tests were performance-based. Wow, that's crazy at that point, right? I mean, I feel like performance-based was such a big deal when we were talking about Common Core, but that's, you guys were doing that way before Common Core. Well, we were, and there were a few other states, including Connecticut, Kentucky, even uh, California had a system called class that was an attempt at this. Hmm. But you know, trying to do that large scale and tie it to accountability systems was really, really hard. But we learned an extraordinary amount. My own two kids went through Maryland schools during that era, and I saw the impact that it had on their what they were working on, what they were doing for homework. It was a lot more authentic work in all subjects, at least in the tested subjects, as a result of the state assessment. So even though I I wasn't a huge fan of an accountability-driven system, Mm -hmm. which this was, I I became so aware of how impactful having the right assessments can, in fact, support meaningful learning and better better teaching. Absolutely. Um, I then shifted after a while in that role to where I was more comfortable, which was 
I was asked to direct something called the Maryland Assessment Consortium, which was a grassroots effort, really a professional development project, but with a product component. And so the Maryland Assessment Consortium, basically we featured summer workshops where teachers from all over Maryland could come together uh, for week-long intense workshops, learning about performance assessment, but more importantly, working in teams to design performance tasks uh, and associated rubrics that could be available, made available to teachers all over the state. The idea being, look, if the state is going to be assessing kids on performance-based measures, we should know more about them and we should know how to incorporate them into our teaching. Mm -hmm. My interest was, and we actually declared that our goal was developing formative performance assessments to really drive home the notion of the route to improve performance is through formative assessment and feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, you you don't weigh the the cattle by, or, you know, fatten the cattle by weighing them. (laughs) You know, you, you fatten them through rich learning experiences that culminate in performance assessments. Mm. So during that period, I learned a tremendous amount about how to work with people to design high quality tasks that weren't just assessments that you use at the end of teaching to get a grade, but they are how you direct your teaching. Right. Throughout the process. I love that. They're like the game in athletics. It's Mm -hmm. what we're pointing toward. And we plan backward from the game with the players we have to work on the knowledge, skills and strategy. Well, and how great for those teachers to have a space to come together and truly engage in this work in a collaborative way. It was one of the most extraordinary professional learning experiences that I've encountered, Um, not unlike the the National Writing Project model, which I've also believe is is an excellent professional learning program. But what was noteworthy with the performance assessments was it wasn't just about creating assessment tasks. It was about really getting to know what the standards were calling for. Mm -hmm. You really had to know the standards well to develop good tasks. And then you develop rich, authentic, engaging tasks. But then you had to think about what were the most important criteria Mm -hmm. and get away from what is sometimes too often surface features of a product versus trying to get at the essence of what the learning outcome was that the product provides evidence for. Exactly. And then subsequently, we would develop these tasks in the summer, review them, put them all out there for trial during the school year. And then we get together two or three times a year where the teacher teams would come together with student work from the tasks. And it was looking at student work in teams, analyzing the strengths and weaknesses, and then putting everyone would put their heads together and say, what do we do about the things where we're seeing the kids having the most trouble? Mm-hmm. And so it, it shifted from just an assessment to get you measures or numbers to truly an improvement system where it all came back to good teaching. Yeah, it almost sounds like it supports like this action research in your classroom where you are implementing and collecting evidence of learning and then going and analyzing it with colleagues and figuring out what needs to be addressed and then designing things to help address those issues, which I I think is what all PLCs I wish were doing, you know, as a way to continue learning together. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it was. And in fact, we even had as the as the, this Maryland Assessment Consortium matured, and I was working with it for about eight years, we actually built in a a formal action research component, Hmm. just as you described. So it was extraordinarily powerful. During that period, I met Grant Wiggins. First, when I was in the state, 
uh, Ed, because Grant was at the time working with Ted Sizer and the Coalition of Essential Schools. And Grant had really popularized two things that I now emphasize today, essential questions as a way of framing curriculum Mm -hmm. and, quote, authentic assessments. So we brought him in as a consultant when we were working on the state performance assessments. And then I brought him in subsequently to work with the Maryland Assessment Consortium. Um, Grant and I became good friends. We were the same age. He went to St. John's College, which is in Annapolis, Maryland, so I knew of that. Mm -hmm. And the whole college was built on Socratic seminars, which explained a lot of of Grant's brilliance and his his (laughs) way of operating. Um, And so we would then see each other at conferences because I was starting to do some presenting, both on higher-order thinking and then subsequently on performance assessment. Uh, Grant was doing the same kind of thing. And someone from ASCD, the educational organization, invited us to a dinner and said, um, this is not a free dinner. I'm inviting <laughs> you here because there's no free lunch here. I want you two to write a book. And so, and she assumed it was going to be on assessment. And she promised that we would meet before the conference ends and get back to her with our outline. Um, so we met for breakfast the next day. And I said, what do you think? And Grant said, well, you know, I've been working on assessment, but he said, my doctorate at Harvard was on curriculum design. And I said, you know, and my interest is in instructional strategies and more, you know, cognitive process instruction. And so we decided at that breakfast meeting that we would not just do a book on assessment. And that was the underpinnings of understanding by design. Um, So, so just fast forward, the last part of my career, that book was published in 1997. I had a full-time job. My wife was um, a resource teacher in visual art. I had two kids in elementary and middle school. And the book took off, not anything we expected. And then I'm starting, like, like you've had in your experience, you start getting requests for consulting and presentations. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to the point where I just couldn't do both. I couldn't keep a full-time job yeah. and respond to these requests. And yet, that's where my my energy was. You know, I wanted to to share the ideas from the book. So one of those crossroad life moments, which again, fortune smiled on me. I had an there was an early retirement incentive from the state of Maryland for people between twenty five and thirty years, which is where you could have a full retirement. Oh, I wow. had just just hit twenty five years, <laughs> and so barely it made a, it. <laughs> yeah, perfect storm. The last twenty years have been writing and consulting. I know you are a prolific writer. I love I love reading what you put out there and it's so thoughtful and so much of what I've read from you has really encouraged me to think differently. I just read your book on essential questions and it's so funny because I've been doing all of this work around helping teachers take the 5E's instructional model and adapt it for this online blended learning moment. And initially I was working with teachers around identifying a topic to drive it. And then I started thinking about how much more captivating questions are. And there's actually a quote that is from something you and um, uh, Grant Wiggins wrote. And it was all about how questions are doorways that help us understand like themes. And it spoke to me. And I remember thinking, I want to start working with teachers around crafting really thoughtful questions that are open-ended and intellectually engaging to drive these investigations, because I think questions are so powerful. But it was really reading your book that got me thinking in that direction in such a concrete way. Oh, I'm well delighted. (laughs) 
So I also read and loved your article. I think it's titled Instructional Shifts to Support Deep Learning in the Mm -hmm. Educational Leadership um, Publication. And I loved your focus on shifting from kind of trying to cover this breadth of facts and information and, and really shift to kind of focusing and framing the learning using these essential questions and kind of that strategy of positioning a unit within a larger concept or theme. And as I work with teachers, I feel like a lot of the exhaustion, the frustration they feel and that they talk about is in part kind of tied to this pressure that they feel to cover so much ground in terms of curriculum. So I'm curious, like, how do you think this shift from breath to more of a focus on um, depth and kind of having students making meaning how can this address some of these imbalances that we're seeing in education? Because I'm sure you're seeing them all the time in your work as, you know, a consultant and a trainer working with teachers. Uh, very much so. And your question gets at the heart of one of the one of the big ideas in understanding by design. You have no doubt heard and your listeners have no doubt heard the phrase guaranteed and viable curriculum. <laughs> I that, have. That comes from uh, Bob Marzano's research. And I've known Bob for 25 years. And when when Bob was working at the McCrell Regional Educational Laboratory in Denver, he and his colleague, John Kendall, did an exhaustive review of state standards that were out at the time and concluded, which is no surprise to anyone, but, but at the time it was noteworthy that there's way too much content jammed into state standards and not enough time to teach all that content well. Mm-hmm. And his use of the word viable was very purposeful. It, he, he, he declared, you can't have a viable curriculum if there's too much content and not enough time. Mm-hmm. And the result is something we've seen. Teachers feel pressured to, quote, cover it all, exacerbated by the tested areas where it might be on the state test and we can't let the scores drop. And so the result to me is a, quote, coverage approach to teaching, which, because there's too much content, means you can't slow down. You, you got to keep going. Even mm-hmm. if the kids don't get it, right. don't get behind. Yep. And so the result is, quite predictably, or potentially at least, superficial, disconnected learning. Um, so in terms of balance, what, what Grant and I have argued for, and it, it it speaks to your theme. I want to talk about balance in a couple of ways, but the first way is let's think about balance in terms of learning goals or outcomes. And we've described what we believe categorically are three important, related, but not identical types of learning goals, and that it's really important that we have a balance among them. The first type we've described as acquisition goals, as a question what knowledge and skills should students acquire in this unit or in this course? And, you know, that's a, that's a straightforward question. Mm-hmm. And grade level standards are typically the answer. You know, grade level standards typically specify the knowledge and skills for a given topic or, or a grade level. But the second goal type are understanding goals. And understanding are around the larger concepts principles and processes within disciplines. Let's start within disciplines. And they're not identical. As you know, you could know something as in remember it, 
but that doesn't mean you understand it or that it doesn't mean you can necessarily use it in a new way. Mm-hmm. And so there's a difference between knowledge and understanding. And so we, we propose that when you're planning curriculum, it's not just a blitz through long lists of knowledge and skills for acquisition. You also want to be mindful of the larger ideas that you want kids to come to understand. Mm-hmm. The third goal type is transfer. Basically stated as one's ability to take what one has learned and apply it to new and even unpredictable situations. Um, my contention for a long time, and even more today than when Understanding by Design was published, is that a modern education should be targeting transfer. Mm -hmm. That we're preparing kids for an increasingly complex, interconnected, and unpredictable world. And the current pandemic that's gripping the world is is a sobering case in that point. Nobody predicted this a year ago. Well, maybe a few of people. epidemiologists, but um, this was not on the radar, and yet it's been the most gripping, impactful experience of of our collective lives. Um, And so my argument is when we think about balance, we need to be thinking about not just covering lots of stuff for surface level learning. We need to be teaching for understanding, and ultimately, our goal should be preparing kids for transfer. Now, the reality of that, how do you make that viable? You don't try to cover every bit of content there is to cover. Mm-hmm. You'll drive yourself crazy, and the result could easily be superficial and fragmented learning. And kids who disengage, right? Because they're totally overwhelmed. <laughs> and they don't see the connection between and among things. Um, and so the argument uh, that we've put forth, and I've been increasingly overt about it, is the problem of too much content, it, to me, is, a, is fundamentally a curriculum problem. And the answer is you have to have a prioritizing frame to frame and focus the curriculum content. And the way that we're proposing do it, doing it is to start by asking a straightforward question. And it's really a programmatic question, not for individual teachers as much as a collective, you know, the English department and the world language department and the science department. What do we want students to be able to do with their learning in the long run when they confront new and unseen (laughs) information or experience? Mm -hmm. And we call these long-term transfer goals because they really should be thought of as exit outcomes. And I'm arguing, and I have examples of this in my writings and on my website, that we're talking about a small number of long-term transfer goals for any subject area or any discipline. And then a small number of those goals that cut across disciplines, Mm -hmm. like critical thinking, like the ability to work effectively in teams, effective communication, so on. Um, So we plan backward from those, but we know you can't transfer something that you don't understand. So you derive understandings from these transfer goals. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the knowledge and skills are the important foundation. I mean, they're basic, and you need the basics. But I like to propose that the basic skills and foundational knowledge should be seen as the floor, not the ceiling Mm. of a modern education. That's a great way to put it. That's a long way of saying one way of balance is to recognize our goal is not to cover all this stuff and there's not enough time. So we have to talk fast in class. Mm -hmm. That's not it. We're going to be clear about the end, which is the ability to apply your learning 
We're going to build the understandings needed for transfer. And we're going to focus on the content that will help us get there, which is different than saying, I have to cover all this stuff. Right. And I think there needs to be, I mean, I think there is a recognition, but maybe there needs to be more uh, light shown on just the fact that, you know, with all this pressure to cover curriculum racing through it, you know, I just don't see the point of trying to cover it all or race through it if kids aren't going to develop a really strong understanding. If, like you said, they're not going to be able to transfer this learning, right? So really taking a step back and reframing and drilling down into these important kind of long-term goals, these exit outcomes, and using them as a guide to figure out where to put our time and energy seems like such a, a refreshing way to kind of think about reevaluating what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And I, as I listen to you talk too, I'm just reminded that in order to kind of get to this place where kids can transfer, we as teachers can't be the focus of what's happening in classrooms. We really have to position students to be kind of these active agents who have the time and space to engage in the messy work that is learning. And I don't think when we're trying to race through curriculum that kids have that space to do that messy work. Um, absolutely. Uh, well said. So there's a couple of, a couple of related points here. Um, let's just take the, the idea of essential questions. Mm-hmm. Part, one of the roles of an essential question is to frame and focus teaching and learning around a smaller number of bigger ideas and processes. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, is just what you alluded to. What we know about learning is learning is going to go deeper and be more lasting when the kids are actively engaged. And they need to actively think and you know make meaning. And so the essential question has a dual role. It has a role of framing the content around larger ideas, but it also has an inquiry-based role to engage kids in exploring these open-ended, never, in some cases, never to be fully answered <laughs> questions. Right. So here's a quick example, one of my favorites for, for social studies, uh, particularly history. Whose story is this? Mm. That single question can be used with first graders to discuss a playground incident where you know kids <laughs> had a skirmish and the teacher's trying to figure out what happened because she wasn't there, right? Or an AP history course. And if you think about the question, whose story is this? You're you're already opening the door to understandings. One of which is history is his story, but it's also her story. To understand the past means we need to recognize that history is interpretation and different people interpret the same events differently. So to really understand the past, we need to deliberately look for different stories, different perspectives. Right. And you could argue that the Black Lives Matter movement is in part trying to make that awareness more widespread in our culture. Absolutely. So there have been stories that have not been heard. Another big idea embedded in that question is at the heart of critical thinking. Who do you believe? Mm-hmm. And a critical thinker takes time to deliberately consider different perspectives, even ones they may not be initially attracted to. Right, uh, right. ones to, they may not agree with, right? Yeah, as, as opposed to falling into the confirmation bias bubble, which we see so prevalently today. So that's one way of saying the essential question provides a prioritizing frame, prioritizing lens, 
And look, you can use that to learn historical facts about American history, et cetera, et cetera. But the goal is not trivial pursuits or right. jeopardy. The goal is, <laughs> is deeper learning where the facts have to be thought about and, and brought into a mosaic that's much richer and transcendent because tomorrow there'll be something new and we want to still have the question, whose story is this front and center in our minds? Right. Yeah. Cause that question so transcends any particular moment, but it is in its simplicity is so powerful. And I'm sure you encounter this, but as I started to work with teachers around using kind of an essential question as a way to think about beginning a student-centered inquiry cycle, it's really challenging for teachers to create essential questions or to craft them. Because I do think for some, you know, some of the questions I get, they really uh, reinforce this idea that teachers have been teaching inside of these boxes where there are really one, there is really one right answer to so many of their questions. And so taking that step back and thinking about a question, and I often will point them actually to your and um, Grant Wiggins' uh, resource. There's a, I think their first chapter of the book that I read is on ASCD, and you provide some just beautiful examples of what these essential questions could look like. There was one um, English teacher I was working with who was really struggling to cultivate this kind of essential question. And I think one of the ones you shared had to do something along the lines of like the ways in which um, culture impacts literature or how how culture is reflected in literature or something really mm -hmm. just it was beautiful and as soon as she heard like that question i think she was like oh that's what i need to be thinking about that's where i need to take this and mm -hmm. so i i do think it's kind of a big step for some teachers to kind of think outside of that here's a question there's an answer to here's a question now there's all kinds of answers eventually you want students generating those questions as yes, well exactly <laughs> What do they care yeah. about? What do they want to investigate? Absolutely. So imagine you have a team of the, the, the smartest, most experienced English teachers, world language teachers, social studies teachers, and so on. You get together maybe in a summer for a couple of days, and you craft a set of what I call overarching questions for your discipline. Mm -hmm. Right? So whose story is it is an example in history. Um, um, what are the limits of mathematical modeling is a question for math. Mm. How does art or culture both reflect and shape culture? I love is that another question. one, right? Yes. So you and I have a I have these compiled already in sets. And so when you have sets like those, those become questions that spiral through the curriculum. They're not limited to one topic or one grade. Mm -hmm. And if you have those published, then teachers when they're teaching third grade, you know, reading or eighth grade uh, science can draw from them and often make them more topic or skill specific mm -hmm. without having to come up with them on their own, Right, which makes this a lot more doable. Plus, you have the spiraling effect, knowing that the kids are going to see the same question, you know, over time, albeit with different content as they go through the grades. 
Right. And as they mature and their thinking matures and they're able to really investigate it from kind of different age lenses as well, which I think can be so powerful because so often I think students see like the work they do at one grade level in one subject area as totally disconnected from the other things that they're learning. And so I can mm-hmm. see that spiral being so powerful for them to really connect these ideas and be thinking really deeply about them over time, which they rarely get a chance to do. So when you are talking about your journey, and I think about this, you know, framing the the curriculum, doing these deep dives into kind of questions, I know that one of the things a lot of teachers are thinking about and worried about as they navigate blended learning, but for so many right now, online learning, is this kind of concern about assessment when students are learning online, right? So they're worried about kids cheating or even for the younger grades. I have a lot of elementary teachers who are like scared that parents are doing the work for students. And so I would love personally to see teachers shifting away from more traditional forms of assessment and begin to embrace creative performance-based strategies for assessing student learning, which I know is definitely a big passion and something you write a bit about. So I'd love for you to just kind of talk us through, like, how do you define a performance task for the teachers listening? Um, How do you communicate the value of performance tasks? And maybe what role do you see them in particular playing in this moment as students are on these hybrid schedules or learning online? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, So let me start with the definition. To me, a performance task is simply any learning activity and or assessment. And as I said, they can be both. They serve both purposes, Mm -hmm. um, where the students have to, quote, perform with their learning. So a performance task is basically an application of something that they've learned. Um, I've written about this a lot, and and for me, a good performance task has several several qualities. One, um, ideally, it involves some degree of transfer and so the students are applying their learning to something that's new, as opposed to it's just kind of regurgitation of something they, they learned formulaically, or if it's mathematics, they just plug in the numbers into a memorized algorithm and get a simple answer. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't qualify. There has to be some novelty um, in the application. Um, and there's a question about how, how novel should it be, and that's, that's, <laughs> another, that's another variable. But let's, let's just say application uh, is a part of it. Um, secondly, the tasks have to involve some kind of, quote, higher order thinking. Right. And so when you look at the verbs of good performance tasks, you see verbs like analyze, evaluate, predict, create, um, justify, um, design, as opposed to remember, recall, retell. Right. Uh, thirdly, my strong recommendation is that every task has to have a communication component that involves explanation or justification. So whatever you do, whether it's in mathematics or an inquiry project um, that's multidisciplinary or a communication project in English language arts, et cetera, et cetera, um, there's some application, but there also has to be an explanation. Mm-hmm. Why did you do this? Show your work, justify your answer, support your argument, etc. Surface so your thinking, say, right? <laughs> yeah, a good performance task involves application to something somewhat new and explanation or justification. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, 
the task ideally will be set in a quote authentic context um, and the authenticity to me ideally it's always not always possible but ideally has two dimensions so the more familiar dimension of authenticity is authentic to the quote real world mm-hmm. so we want to give kids opportunities to apply learning to situations that either replicate or at least reflect how people outside of school use knowledge and apply skills. Uh, that's the real world authenticity. Right. Now, even in that case, you're going to have a continuum. You can have truly authentic, and I'll give an example in a moment, or often cases, particularly for younger kids, it's simulated authenticity. So imagine you're an archaeologist or imagine you're a city planner. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it ref- but nonetheless, the task reflects what real people do outside of school. The second dimension, I think, is under sometimes appreciated, which is we want to set up contexts as much as possible that are authentic to the interests and experiences of kids. Because the two dimensions aren't always conjoined. Right. You can have an authentic task, but the kid has no interest in <laughs> drywalling a re- basement rec room. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. Even though it's a rich mathematical task. Right. But they might be interested in designing their dream bedroom or their their man cave in the basement. Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's one way of saying, to me, a performance task involves those elements. W- let me ask a question back. What are the factors that you've seen as a teacher and that you've seen as a parent in your own kids and other teachers see? What are the conditions that cause students to really want to put forth effort on something in school, even if it's not easy? And when they're done, they're proud of what they have done and they want to put it on the refrigerator if they're elementary or they want to show it to grandma and grandpa when they come over. Um, So what are those conditions? Well, I was actually going to say, I think producing something for an actual audience beyond Mm -hmm. the teacher's eyes to me is one of the best incentives I feel like I was ever able to give kids when they were working on something is to know that they were going to have to share it with an audience and and hopefully get feedback from that audience in some kind of substantive way. I also think that giving them agency, so when they had a degree of choice in terms of what they focused on or how they went about kind of executing a specific project or assignment or task that the more they got to make some of those key decisions, the more they leaned into those learning opportunities. And, you know, whenever anything is really challenging cognitively, I think having a support network of peers, you know, really tapping into that community of learners so that you have sounding boards and you have people you can ask questions and seek support. That that has also been one of those kind of hallmarks of those moments where I see kids really kind of working through those moments of struggle and then being so proud at the end of it. So having that audience, enjoying a high degree of agency and being connected to a network or a, a learning community, a network of peers. Yeah, I mean, beautifully said, Cowan. And and so other teachers know that, or they, in their own children, they've seen, even if it's occasionally, the kids get really excited about something. They talk about it at dinner table. Mm-hmm. They they work on it when they're not, they're not you know, uh, directed to. And so that, to me, what you just said have the qualities of good performance tasks. It's around a relevant issue, problem, situation. 
where there's a, there's a real goal and purpose mm-hmm. that interests the kids. There's a tangible audience. There's voice and choice. And there's feedback from people they trust, mm-hmm. including peers. Um, and, it's, and they have a belief that there's something that they can accomplish. At least there's some degree of possibility for them. As right. opposed to something that's so hard that they don't think they can do it, and so they shut down. Right. Within that zone of proximal development, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But my, my work recently, and in the book that you referenced on performance tasks and projects, you know, I've been really d- drawn to this idea of task frames that give a structure for tasks, but also are open-ended and have opportunity for both teacher, agency, and student voice and choice. So when we can frame learning around these kinds of rich, authentic tasks that have the elements that you described, we don't need to drive learning solely extrinsically by the threat of grades. There's an inherent and intrinsic motivation that's, that, that you can see. It's palpable. You can see the energy, even when it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. They keep at it. Yeah. I'm arguing that we should shift our thinking about curriculum mapping to what I call 3.0. What if we mapped out the curriculum not around input or content to be covered? What if we mapped the curriculum around rich, authentic tasks that reflect what we want students to be able to do with learning? Hmm. And that we could literally lay out the tasks across a year and vertically across the grades planned backward from long-term transfer goals, those that nested within disciplines and some that cut across disciplines. And so we shift our conception of teaching and curriculum from a coverage model to a performance-based coaching extracurricular kind of model. I love that. And if we wanted to go even farther, we could couple it to a competency-based model, which would be more radical even, and that would say, (laughs) We're even going to dissolve age and grade level grouping, at least in a rigid way, because competency-based is when you can demonstrate you can do something. Um, anyway, that's my, that's my um, <laughs> passion right now of really trying to sell that idea. Wow. That's, I love that you're pushing that direction. I think that would really create, like you said, kind of that real focus that teachers could kind of get on board with and then plan around, like thinking through in an intentional way, what a kids need from us and from each other to get to this place, right? To be able to demonstrate these competencies or you know, engage with this particular performance task. And like I told you, that's actually that book, Designing Authentic Performance Tasks and Projects, is one that I've pulled into my my book list for the class I'm teaching at Pepperdine University in the in spring semester, just because I really want students who are planning to go into the teaching profession to be really thinking about the role of assessment and kind of thinking outside their traditional boxes when they think about assessment. I usually like to end the show by giving my guests kind of last word on the topic of balance. And it doesn't necessarily have to be related to education. It can be related to any aspect of your life. But are there any kind of lessons learned about balance, you know, whether it's in your personal life, your professional life, a blend of the both that you want to share that might help listeners who in this moment are feeling like they're struggling a little bit with balance? 
Well, I'll give you very much on the personal side. Um, I found that I'm happiest and I'm also most productive, even on a daily basis, when I integrate three kind of elements of life outside of family now, just kind of personal. Um, intellectual, physical, and I'll for loosely say spiritual with a small s. <laughs> for, for me, um, uh, exercise has always been important, partly because I'm high strung and fidgety. And so it, it kind of mellows me out. So even I'll be 71 in two weeks and I still run, swim and lift weights. Wow. And I do that in a, in a balanced way. So I don't get, you know, too sore from running five days in a row. I'll run every other day. Um, and it helps the, the stress level, but it also clears my head. Mm-hmm. Um, intellectually, you know, just I think, you know, if you're a good teacher, you're not just teaching the same thing over and over again. You're thinking about methods. You're learning new things. Um, and for me, I'm fortunate that I can spend time reading. I listen to a lot of podcasts like yours <laughs> um, and writing. So that that's the intellectual part. And I still get a, a joy and a, and a kind of endorphin rush when I write something that really clicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for me on the spiritual side, I've been a meditator now for 47 years. Um, I learned transcendental meditation back in the 70s. And I'm not into the spiritual side of it or the, the Hindu uh, basis. It's very, for me, secular. But probably outside of my family, the most significant thing in my life in that it's promoted uh, a, uh, a mental clarity that is, um, I think, in many ways, bespeaks of what I've been able to do in my professional life. Uh, I was never a particularly strong writer in college or even in my early teaching years. And I think I've gotten to be a better writer because, A, experience, absolutely, Mm -hmm. but also the clarity that um, taking time just to stop thinking twice a day Mm -hmm. uh, yields. So those that's been a very important balance for me. It's the physical, intellectual, and the kind of taking time to be quiet. and and I, I remember reading uh, something in science about the strength of an ecosystem is when the system has a variety of organisms but is in balance. Hmm. And if, if, you know, one organism takes over, it becomes out of balance and becomes stressed and becomes unhealthy. Um, and so I think, you know, in our lives, as much as we can achieve whatever works for us in terms of balance, it keeps us physically and, and mentally, um, you know, settled and um, less stressed. Yeah. Um, having said that, I, I also am at the point where my kids are grown and I have grandchildren, but I, I don't see them 24-7. So uh, that makes a difference. I can, I can have a little more time for, for personal balance. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely this these years of working and kids and it's a lot, but I I think that your your points are really they resonate for me. Those those times when I carve out time to feed myself intellectually and read and explore new ideas is so invigorating. I like you am super high strong and so very <laughs> I need that physical outlet if I'm going to feel like I have any kind of balance in my life. So, love those quotes and or those tips and I want to just thank you for spending some time with me. I I cannot encourage folks who are listening enough. Everything I have read that Jay McTie has written has been phenomenal. So, I'm it's just been such a pleasure to have you on. 
Well, it's a pleasure speaking with you. And and I was very struck when I heard your presentations uh, last year at that conference in South Africa. So I know we're kindred spirits in trying to engage kids in authentic uh, and engaging work. There are so many things that Jay mentioned in this conversation that I absolutely feel passionately about. And I've read so much of his work and really find it so inspiring and clarifying. So his point about needing to shift away from this kind of coverage mentality, this pressure to just cover the the standards. And there are so many that often teachers don't have the time, the space to really allow students to dive deep and engage in that messy work that is learning. And I appreciated his conversation about the essential questions, which I've read his book that he authored with Grant Wiggins about essential questions and using them to really frame and focus the learning, using it, like he said, as that prioritizing lens, right? We can't cover everything. So let's craft these open-ended, thought-provoking, essential questions that can really lead to depth in terms of what kids are doing in our classes. I also like his conversation about the the performance tasks and really grounding those in an authentic context so they're connected to real life. And whether that's an authentic context, like truly authentic, or even for young kids, kind of a simulated authenticity so that their work is anchored in things that feel real and relevant and they really focus on driving that higher order thinking and preparing kids with the skills they're going to need to approach these new and novel situations that they're likely to approach outside of the classroom. So for me, I love his recommendations. I love the way he talks about the design of learning with that high degree of intentionality, which I think is so critical in this moment and in all moments. But really right now, as teachers are trying to navigate the demands of hybrid schedules and the concurrent classroom and online teaching. So really appreciated his conversation and the points that he highlighted throughout our discussion. We have two teacher tips for today. Shannon Moore shared a tip from at Tech with Becky on Twitter. And at Tech with Becky was telling her that she was making daily lists for both work and personal things that she needed to get done instead of weekly lists. That way she could ensure that all things were more attainable without being so overwhelmed. And Shannon says she's also planning to adopt this strategy. I could not agree more. I also am a a list maker. Uh, There are very few things in life that bring me as much joy as uh, crossing something off of my to-do list. And I have also found that during the pandemic, it's just helpful to have a list for the day instead of a list for the week or a larger kind of scope list. That way I can, you know, cross things off and know I'm making progress. And I often make my list right before I go to bed so I can capture the things I need to do the next day and hopefully forget about them. The 
second tip comes from Carlin Walker, and she says, honestly, focusing on fun or SEL, social emotional learning, for my students has helped. They need less content, and so do I. Take the time to connect rather than crush them. And I love how in line that is with so much of what we've been talking about on this particular episode. So thank you both for sharing your tips. And if anybody listening has a tip for finding or maintaining balance, you can find me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker and use the hashtag The Balance. I would love to share your tip on a future episode of The Balance. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and with different language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. As teachers navigate an online learning landscape, StudySync is hard at work designing resources to ease this transition. You can check out their remote learning resources, blog posts, webinars, both live and on demand at studysync.com.